please take your Bibles and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. That is Paul's first letter to Timothy. We have two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, and this is the first that we have. As you are opening your Bibles there, let me begin with a word of prayer, asking the Lord to help us. Would you join me? Father, you, your word tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, and your son reminds us in the Gospels, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Father, I pray that today we may hear and we may live, we may rejoice, we may, be, we may remember what you have called us to do. And by your grace, O oh God, set our feet on the pathway to obedience. That we may honor you more than this. That we may find your heart, our heart, your joy, our own. We pray all this in your son's name, Christ Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have, over the last few weeks, I have really enjoyed watching World Cup soccer whenever I get the chance. I played a little bit of soccer, not that I was any really good at it, but I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I love, this is one of my favorite sporting events, um, which I realize in the U.S. is like a minority. Everyone's like, what, is soccer that, that ball that gets kicked again? Yes, it's that one. And uh, I, I have enjoyed it. But one of, my, one of the things I find most humorous whenever I'm watching a sporting event uh, is when they start breaking down ahead of the game, this is what this team needs to do to win. And um, invariably, it, I don't know if it's just because one of the commentators is... Um, just hasn't done his homework or whatever. But invariably, you'll find one commentator who's like, all right, for this team to win, what they have to do is they, you know, they'll give several points, and then the last point will be like, they need to score more goals than the other team. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, really? You got paid to tell us that? That was your big insight, to score more goals. Someone needs to communicate that to the coaches and the team players, because, I mean, Wow, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, I always find that humorous. That there's a goal to these games, and the goal is to score more goals than the other team. It seems self-evident. But you'll find the same thing with baseball or football or any sport. They'll give the same kind of commentary. But even in all of life, we like to know what we're doing and why we're doing it, why we are sitting down to do a craft. What is, what is the big purpose? Well, I'm working on this one part, but this is going to be one part of a whole. Some of you who are quilting, you, you know the various parts. You've got the whole thing, the whole picture, the whole design that you want to create. Some of you garden. Your gardens are immaculate. They're amazing. And you have this in your mind's eye what you are trying that garden to look like. We each have goals in something, something we are trying to accomplish, purposes that we want to see fulfilled in something. And here, Paul is going to give us a a set of priorities for us to look at. He is relaying to us something that we ought to take as very important as he lays out one of the purposes of the gathering of the church. And if, if you're not a Christian, you may 
question or wonder why Christians or people do gather for churches. What is the, what is the purpose of this? Perhaps you have believed that it's, it's merely for moral instruction, that we're here to, to help one another be good, better people. Perhaps you have thought it is simply so that we will, more likely in our day, the purpose of gathering for churches is, is more or less therapeutic, that it's, it's, it's to help one another feel good. You know, oftentimes, especially for some, they gather for church and it just feels good gathering with, with other people and walk away feeling good having gathered with other people. But the goal of gathering for, with God's people is not merely therapeutic. It's not even primarily therapeutic. It's, it that barely registers. It's not that it doesn't have that effect, but that's, that's not the goal. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you're more cynical. You think that Christians gather because merely social pressure, because of the desire to appear religious or good, or to get some kind of benefit or advantage out of, out of gathering. And if we're all honest, we would admit that there are elements of this and have been elements of this in our lives. And probably you can find these elements in churches, not only in this church, but in churches all around the world. But the question for us, what is supposed to be our priorities as we gather as a church? Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy here, and and Timothy is pastoring, he's leading a church in this ancient city of Ephesus. And as he is here, he is clearly dealing with some issues. The very first chapter, Paul is commanding, recommending, strongly urging Timothy to deal with particular individuals who are leading Christians astray. That is, these individuals are teaching things. They're they're claiming to be Christians, but they are in the church, maybe even leaders in the church, but they are teaching other Christians and influencing them to think and believe that which goes against God's word, that which goes against the gospel, the very heart and soul of what Christians believe. And Paul tells Timothy in the very opening verses to to not allow them to teach, to silence them, to prevent them from having any platform, any opportunity within the church. And he goes on, and towards the end, he encourages them, the church, to, to discipline them. But here in chapter two, he reminds us of what we ought to be doing. And he gives us a set of priorities that we are to have as God's people, both as individuals and as a body. The very first thing we see when we read verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul writes, therefore, I exhort first of all. Now that's not merely, all right, now I've gotten past my introduction and here's my first point. That is, this is, first of all, this is the most important thing when you gather. And we know he's talking about the gathering of God's people because the entire chapter of chapter 2, while he never uses these words, he is talking about the gathering of God's people to worship. What are they supposed to be doing when we worship? And this tells us that there is a priority of worship for God's people. In verses 1 to 7, he is laying out the priority of what we are to be about. One of the priorities we are to have in our worship 
In verses 8 and following, he is laying out what are the roles of various people to be in worship. Here he is, this entire chapter, he is consumed in trying to help Timothy, this young leader, see what is the church to be about? What is to be engaged in? The very first thing, the primary thing, is worship. He's talking about worship. The whole chapter assumes that we understand he is engaging us on this topic of worship. He's making an argument that we as Christians are to be gathering. It's, it's an assuming an argument that we as Christians know that gathering for worship isn't just a special add-on. It isn't an unnecessary extra. It, it's not like that transition when some of you will remember those, you, you, could, you would buy a car and you know, the power windows were the power that you provided. you remember that? And do you remember when, you, you know, you were able to then buy a car and it came with the option to hit a button? And now you could just, wow, you could roll that window up or roll it down at the press of a button and life became a lot easier. And now they're continually adding things on. You can buy the standard model or you can upgrade to this. Worship is that standard model. Worship is the engine of the car. You don't buy the car without the engine. Worship is a necessary piece of what it means to be a Christian. Paul is assuming that we get it. And I I just want to make this clear because we can so easily forget that. We can so easily put it on the back burner. We can gather as if it's not necessary for us. I just want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, make the gathering of God's people, the worship with God's people, a priority for yourself and for your family. It's going to get in the way of work. It's going to require that you lose sleep, that you miss out on certain family time or events. But if family time regularly is going to impede from our opportunity, from our obligation to gather and to worship the Lord. This is where we find ourselves tested. Jesus' words tested. Do we, do we love him more than we love our mother and our father and our brothers and sisters? For if we do not, then we are not worthy to be his followers. I, I realize gathering for worship is hard. Gathering for worship can be the most difficult thing you do in a week. If you have kids, you, you know this well. Uh, I get here much earlier than my family, so my wife bears this all on her own. But every now and then, when we are traveling and we're going to a different church, and so now I am, I am home trying to help my family, we're getting out the door. I, I'm used to getting up, getting showered, getting changed, you know, and then, you know, I grab my coffee and I walk out the door, I'm good. But when I'm with my family, all of a sudden, it's chaos, right? It's like shoes all over the place. Well, I thought we had put them aside. Yeah, but they were, they were messing around. One boy comes out, his entire wardrobe is on backwards, you know? Like, like you don't, they just don't realize what's happening and they, they can't find anything. And some of you parents, you know that feeling week in and week out. You try to set things up. You try to get things ready for the next day. But like Sunday comes and it's, it's warfare. 
And then when you get here, it's like a, everything's supposed to be happy. Like two minutes before, I said sit in that seat. Door opens. It's good to see you today. Kids are like, what's, mom's Jekyll and Hyde, what's happening? But we all face that. Sometimes Sunday morning rolls around and the darkness of our room matches the darkness that we feel. And just pulling ourselves out of bed feels like the greatest task we can do. Just showing up can be the most difficult thing we find ourselves doing. Others of you wrestle with bone-deep exhaustion. And it threatens to keep you away from the care that your soul's needs. Pressures from work, pressures of sports, pressures of hunting season and family times and, and everything else. Worship is war. And here in this chapter, he is assuming that you and I understand this, that you and I understand the importance of gathering with God's people to worship him. And he is calling us to it. So I'd encourage you, brothers and sisters, give yourself to this. It will be inconvenient. It will be hard at times. That is part of the gift. And it's not just a priority of worship. We see within worship, there is the priority of prayer. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The point is that prayer is an essential aspect of what we do when we gather for worship, when we gather as Christians. You remember Christ, when he was, goes into the temple, he overturns the tables. Why? My house is to be a house of prayer. And yet, as God's people gather for worship on Sunday mornings, prayer has increasingly in many churches, it it is the thing that gets crowded out. We will add song after song after song. We will shorten the sermon. We'll do all these other things, but we will forget to pray. And it's not that we can only blame church leaders in this. It's that church leaders are often following their people rather than leading them. I've been asked more, why, are we, why do we pray so long? Sometimes I get asked, why do you preach so long too? That's a different conversation. But prayer is something we are called to do. It is meant to be an important part of what we do when we gather together. You know, just think of how ordinary that is. There is nothing spectacular about this, is there? First of all, I want you to pray. I mean, of all the the things that might attract people, of all the things that might be exciting and entertaining or relevant, prayer just doesn't seem to fit the bill. No one, no one, I've never seen a church send out a flyer that says, come, join us, we pray for a considerable length of time in our services. People do not gather just to pray. And yet this is what we are called to do as believers. When we gather, it's not just alone. Here, it's the gathering of God's people. We ought to be praying together. So that when you, when whoever's up here is, is leading us in prayer, part of your responsibility is not just to, to close your eyes and to, and to endure it until it's done. It's that in your seat, you are to be affirming that they are praying. 
Yes, Lord, that, I need that. Yes, Lord, that's true. Would you do that in us, for us? Would you help us with that, Lord? We, we, we pray for them, yes. It is that inner affirmation, praying together, that the praying, affirming that the prayer isn't just theirs, but it is ours. It is an essential for Christian worship. And the other priority you see in this passage is, I'll call it the priority of the world in our hearts. The priority of the world in our hearts. That is, it is a priority, a heart for the world. You see this all throughout the passage. All throughout verses 1 to 7. You see in verse 2, we are to pray for all men. And then, I'm sorry, verse 1 and verse 1 for all men. And then verse 2 for, for kings. And all who are in authority, that they may lead quiet, we may lead quiet and peaceable lives. We see verse four, it is the Lord who desires all men to be saved. And, and then verse six, Christ gave himself a ransom for all. And then Paul will go on and he says, I'm a, a teacher of the Gentiles at the end of verse seven, which is to say, I'm a teacher of all nationalities, all people. Here is this heart for the world that is evident in this passage. We are not just given things to do. We are given an internal priority. This is what we are to be about. Even our prayers are to, be, are to have a priority in them. That is, we want our prayers to not be thermos, thermometers. We want them to be thermostats. That is, a thermometer will merely tell us what the temperature is. A, a thermostat will alter the temperature. It changes the temperature in your home. And the way prayer works is that if it's a thermometer, that is, if we're merely praying whatever we comes to mind, if we're merely praying for our own concerns over time, we will be primarily concerned with only the things that concern us. But if we will think and we will plan and we will be mindful of what the Lord has for us here, that is, we will have this global concern, a heart for the world that we see evident, praying for all men, for all in authority, because God desires all to be saved, because Christ has given himself as a ransom for all, even as Paul is proclaiming Christ to all the world. If we will share in this heartbeat, we will find that our, our prayers, just, just as it is a thermostat, we will were, we were change our own hearts, even as we will pray for the things of the world, the things that we may not be concerned about day in and day out, that may not right up, butt up against our lives, but that we will begin to share in the heartbeat of the Lord for the world. We will begin to look beyond ourselves, beyond our own kids, our own family, our own jobs, beyond our own ministries, our own activities, our own events. And we will think about what the Lord is doing, not just in us, but the church down the street. We want the Lord to work in us, absolutely, to, to bring revival, to, to, to stir up his people. But if he stirs up the church down the street and he doesn't stir us up, he has answered our prayer. We are concerned about not just our own nation, but the other nations. We have a heart for the world. It will prevent us from falling into a sort of like, sense of being an elite. And I think that's part of what the Ephesian people are dealing with, that they have a sense of superiority. 
Which is why Paul is instructing them, hey, stop thinking about yourself and being so self-focused. Think about what God thinks about. Share in his heart. Even as he is looking in the whole world, desiring all to be saved, you need to share that as well. And this kind of praying takes preparation, takes planning, takes forethought. We are to be a praying people, a worshiping people, a people who in our prayers are concerned for the world. More than this, we see the, the prayers of God's people are described there in verse 1, a given multiple uh, descriptions, words to describe it, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks. That is, each of these different words, without getting into the nuance, it seems that Paul is just piling them on one after another. And while there are small nuances and differences within them, his point seems to be, whatever the situation calls for, pray, pray for these people, all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, for whatever is needed. And it begs the question, what kinds of people ought we to pray for? Well, we told there at the end of verse 1, we are to be doing all this for all men. Not just the people we like, not just the people who are like us, but all men. We're to be praying for people of different nationalities, praying for people of different political persuasions, praying for those that we feel are lost, we feel are against us. We ought to pray for all kinds of people. More than this, we are to pray, verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. For kings and all who are in authority. This means we must pray for President Biden, for Nancy Pelosi, for John Fetterman, for Josh Shapiro, our governor-elect, as well as for any other elected leaders that you might like and those that you don't. We pray for local leaders, for our local police, for local firemen and women, for school administrators and school boards and school teachers. We pray for Christians and the, and the leadership of, of, of org, Christian organizations. We pray for kings and all who are in authority. Not just the ones we like, but the ones that we don't. We know that because the one who would have been in authority at this time, the, the emperor over Rome, was Nero who was no friend to Christianity. His hostility to Christians had already surfaced, and it was going to surface again in incredibly horrific ways. And yet Paul is instructing Christians, pray for him. And if they were instructed to pray for Nero, how much more ought we to pray for our national leaders? And not just our national leaders, but this includes leaders of other countries as well. All kings, all who are in authority. And the aim of our prayer is, we see there at the end of verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That is, on one part, he's saying... Pray that we may be free from war, from harassment, from open hostility. He's pray that we may have the freedom to gather, the freedom to follow Christ, the freedom to, to do what needs to be done as believers. But it's not merely so that we can have peace and quiet. It's so that we may do 
we may live in obedience to Christ. But more than this, it's that we may be free to spread the gospel to all people. It's not only free to live as disciples, it's free to make disciples. We, we pray for them with the aim, not only that we want the Lord to bless, to guide, to instruct, to restrain those, those who are in leadership, but we pray so that the gospel may flourish because where kings and rulers and governments rule wisely, the people of God may flourish. We see this in verses 1 to 4. Track with me through the logic of this passage very quickly. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving, thank, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are, we are called to worship. We are called to make prayer a priority in worship. We are called to pray for all. We are kind of pray with all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, even those in authority. And we are to pray so that we may be free to live godly lives as God commands us. So that as we live, as we worship Christ, others may come to know the Lord. That's, that's the logic of this passage. It flows from concerns merely about us to concerns about those who need to hear Christ. Why are we to pray for all people, even those who are in authority, including political leaders, even though they may be against us? The heart behind it is that the world may be reached with the gospel of Jesus. And did you catch the, the justification for that act? But this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is the heartbeat of the Lord. There is the heartbeat of God. Friend, I, I don't want us to, to miss out on that. To to skip over it. It, If you've been a Christian for a length of time, that statement just may seem obvious to you. Oh, of course God desires, God God loves the world. Of of course, okay, let's, let's move on to the next point. We need to understand how shocking that is. We, we ourselves are, are sinful. We are broken And yet the the Lord desires sinners to be saved. In our prayers for others, we do not want to pray primarily for our economic comfort, nor for our own security, nor for our own freedoms and rights. We do not pray primarily for our own peace, for our own, for merely merely for peace, merely for an end of hunger, merely for justice to be done, although we want to be praying for all of these things. The aim of it all is that we want to see men and women and children, we want to see people come to know Christ as their Savior. For this is the will of God. Some of you here this morning maybe. 
shocked to find out that what the Lord wants from you, what, what we want for you more than anything else, is that you come to know Jesus as your Savior. That is, if you're not a Christian, what we want for you more than anything else is that you will become a Christian. And children, it is good for you to know no one is born a Christian. That is, no one is, is born within their family as a Christian. Even if you have Christian parents, that does not make you a Christian. That is, we become a follower of Christ. We become born again through the living word of God. That is, as we trust in Christ, as he makes us alive to him by his spirit. It is not something that happens naturally. It is something God must do in us. And what we want for you more than anything else is that you would come to know the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. We want you to to see, to know clearly that as good as you may think you are, in the eyes of God, you, like us all, deserve his condemnation, deserve his judgment. That is the very first thing we must recognize before we could ever come to the Lord. Not only that God exists, but that we are unworthy of Him. That we have sinned against Him, rebelled against Him. Do you not find yourself, day after day, thinking about what you want, what you are trying to accomplish? Let me ask, when you open up those old pictures of your family or your school yearbook and you are looking at the pictures of your class, where does your eye go to first? Who are you looking at first? Is it not yourself? Are we not more concerned with what we look like before we even think of anyone else? Around this time of year, my family, we always get pictures taken for our Christmas cards My wife is insistent that we do this. It's like pulling teeth for her every year. None of us except her really enjoy it. So we all we all we all do this. We're we're, we all feign happiness to be standing outside still for a moment, trying to get pictures. And most of the time, like I will tell you this, if all of our boys are looking terrible. But my wife looks great. That's the picture we're looking at. Just kidding. Like, we, we care about the way we look. We are more concerned with ourselves than we are anyone else. And that right there is a signal of where our hearts really are at. Rather than giving God the glory his due, we rob him. We take it for ourselves. And not only for ourselves, we we want others to appreciate our glory, to admire it, to compliment that glory. We long for their affirmation of our own glory. We have broken God's law. We have demeaned him and diminished his glory. We deserve his judgment. We have impugned his character. And we deserve nothing from him but justice. Pure, unfettered justice. And yet he 
in his mercy has sent his son into the world to rescue sinners. If you are a Christian, it's not because you are particularly wise. It's definitely not because you were born into a home with Christian parents and grew up in the church. It is because you have humbled yourself and trusted in Christ alone. And friend, I would urge you, if you have never done that, you can do that from your seat at this very moment, calling on the Lord, asking for his forgiveness, trusting in Jesus. You can talk to myself, Pastor Armstrong. You can turn to someone afterwards and ask them how you might know Christ as your Savior. And we would be more than glad to share that with you. What we see in this passage is that urging, that that expectation that God's people gather for worship as a priority. And then within that worship there is prayer. And then within that prayer what dominates it, what drives it, is a heart for the world. That heart, which is itself an evidence of God's own heart. That he cares for we who do not deserve it. Friend, trust in Christ this very moment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not let that grow old. Even as we celebrate the Lord's table in just a moment, These are not just bread and cup that we take. Do not just merely go through the motions. Magnify in your heart what the Lord has done for you through Christ Jesus. That the debt you owed, that the price you deserve to pay, God himself in his mercy has paid it. Not because you and I were particularly worthy of it, but because he is merciful and gracious. We want to taste and see that God is good. Taste and see his grace in Christ Jesus. And we need to remember this. It will prevent us from becoming so self-centered. It'll prevent us from self-righteousness. It'll keep us from pride. It will encourage us towards humility. Let us, by God's grace increasingly share his heart with the world, to remember to shape our prayers, not only with our own concerns, though we we want to be praying for our own concerns, but to be praying for the world, to be praying for those around us, to be praying for the gospel to advance by the power of God, through the word of God, by the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how we need you. How we need you to work in us, not not merely to prompt us to obey, but these are priorities of the heart. These are things that we must increasingly not only do, but feel. Lord, work within us. Help us to honor you, to obey you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
for you alone are worthy of it, O God. We pray all this in your Son's name, our Savior Jesus. Amen.